0: Today on a spectacular version of Ag News
1: Daily. Basically said, if a small refinery produces less than seventy-five thousand barrels a day of petroleum, they are classified as a small refiner.
0: I'm Mike Pearson, joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, it is Halloween. What are you doing to celebrate?
2: <laughs> well, I like your introduction. It is a spectacular day here on this Thursday afternoon. Um, I am not doing a whole lot to celebrate Halloween. I might watch a scary movie tonight, or, like, I mean, a classic is, of course, just the Halloween movies. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you watch those?
0: You know what? I'm going to be really honest. I'm going to come clean to all of our listeners. I hate scary movies.
2: Oh. I
0: hate them. I am a total, total wuss. I get nightmares for weeks after I watch a scary movie. Like, like, hocus pocus.
2: That's not even scary.
0: I know. That's how little my tolerance is for scary movies. I just, I can't do them.
2: Okay. Well, I like scary movies, so I might curl up tonight, watch some scary movies, and eat some Halloween candy, and that's about as exciting as my Halloween's going to get. What about you, Mike?
0: So, I am not entirely sure what my Halloween looks like. I was trying to decide, so, you know, I live in an apartment building now, and it's 30, and you know, it's 52 stories. I have no idea how many kids are in it, but I feel like I'm probably going to buy some candy. And see if anybody knocks on the door, hope that they don't, and then just eat all the candy.
2: (laughs) That sounds about right. Um, So, yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully everybody out there, all our listeners are getting in Halloween excursions with their families if they've got little kids. But it's not a very pleasant Halloween today to go trick-or-treating with it being so cold. And, again, we had snow overnight um, across all of Iowa from what I have seen on Twitter and just talking to family and friends from across the state. Have you guys gotten any snow yet in Chicago?
0: Yes. So actually right now I have about one block of visibility with the snow.
2: Really? Because it's coming down that hard?
0: Yes. It wow. is coming down. You know, they're saying it's lake effect snow. This is what happens. It When it comes down, it comes down hard.
2: Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah. You know
0: that's the way it is. That's that's uh, Chicago living.
2: That is Chicago living. All right. Very. And you know it's
0: interesting. So I had to leave my apartment about five thirty this morning to uh, to catch the bus to go out to the western suburbs
2: because
0: I don't think we've announced this on the podcast, Delaney, and I think now we can. Good. I last week started as a contributing anchor to this week in agribusiness. So uh, as a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, are aware, that show has been hosted by Max Armstrong and Orion Samuelson for years and years and years, and I will be filling in for Orion when he you know, doesn't quite feel like uh, making the trek up in the winter um, to, uh, to host the show. So I will be a frequent participant on the program, so be sure to tune in on RFD-TV. And of course, listeners, if you aren't aware... You can always find Delaney Howell on market-to-market on public television stations across the country. So we continue to grow our media empire, Delaney.
2: Oh, yeah. I love it. It's fantastic.
0: It really is. Um,
2: Yeah, so anyway,
0: that's my news. But we've also got news happening in agriculture.
2: That we do, Mike. Although it is a little bit of a smaller news cycle today, I would say. However, there is one thing that's been going on to the West that we really haven't addressed too much on the podcast, although it happens, unfortunately, almost every year it seems like now. But that is wildfires going on out West in California especially. And we continue to see wildfires out there right now. And we saw... California's Governor Newsom announced that their state is partnering up with the I-Bank program and they are guaranteeing loans for up to a million dollars for small businesses that have been affected or suffered economic losses due to those wildfires and those include farms, nurseries and other ag-related enterprises like wine grapes and other fruits and vegetables that are located out there. But gosh, some of the stuff that's even made some national news coverage now that I've seen is those wildfires out there in California.
0: Yeah, it is. It is really terrible. And, you know, we talk about wineries you know we don't talk much about wineries on Ag News Daily you know our focus tends to be on broad acre row crops and livestock like we find in the Midwest but there have been numerous wineries that have absolutely burned to the ground in uh, in northern California in that uh, Napa Valley area and you know you think of the investment that goes into building cultivating creating a winery it is absolutely unreal and to see our fellow agriculturalists go through that kind of loss is absolutely heartbreaking
2: yes it absolutely is so keep those thoughts or keep those people in your thoughts and prayers
0: yes indeed um let's see so yeah and i did hear some news weather news and of course i'm no meteorologist but i talked to some and they do say that those high winds hurricane force winds is what they've been experiencing out there. that's why these wildfires have been spreading so crazily um they do expect those to start to slow down here over the next week so maybe they'll begin to catch a break
2: yeah hopefully but you never know
0: yeah well well, that's the truth you do never know so yeah yeah uh, we're not you know we think of the slow harvest pace we're going through and the challenges we're facing we're not alone folks agriculture across the northern hemisphere agriculture really across the globe is suffering and, um, you know, we've got something interesting here, sort of tangentially, re- tangentially related. Um, ethanol in Brazil, it is their production is expected to increase. They are the world's second largest market for ethanol. However, their increase is not expected to be enough to cope with rising demand, and Brazil will continue importing ethanol from the U.S. to cover the shortfall. Uh, they say demand for ethanol in Brazil will will increase around 2.5% per year in the coming year. That means the country is going to need 5 billion liters in addition to what they produce through 2025. And they're going to come to the U.S. to buy that ethanol. So I think that is good news. Our ethanol plants have been struggling for some time. Additional demand would be fantastic.
2: Well, that is very fitting, especially for today's interview, because we are going to be chatting with Robert White with the Renewable Fuels Association to discuss the recent ethanol implications with the small refinery waivers and other issues impacting that realm. And I also want to add in a quick piece of news here. We saw an RFS waiver proposal happening in Michigan just this week, and I thought this was interesting. The article featured on DTN discusses one farmer in particular from Monticello, Iowa, that put down his harvest gear and combining to travel to, I'm going to butcher the name, Mike, it's Ypsilanti, Michigan. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Ypsilanti,
0: Michigan. I believe you are
2: correct. Okay. Well, he uh, decided to put his harvest on pause because he felt this was so important to make his voice heard at this public hearing held there in Ypsilanti and a lot of other producers from all across the country primarily from those corn producing states came to make their voices heard about how they feel about the new quote unquote compromise that the Trump administration has released.
0: All right. Well, yeah, not a lot of happy campers when it comes to that compromise. Hopefully we'll be able to get some things changed and make a more fair deal make as Robert White will talk about in our interview here in about five minutes or 10 minutes or whenever we get to him. (laughs) um, Just, make it so the rf so the epa follows the law that's that's all we're asking for from the ethanol side of things is that we have the statute 15 billion gallons let's just stick to it right so i've got some news and this is some inside baseball of trade policy so listeners if trade policy you find absolutely boring feel free to tune out the next three (laughs) minutes because this is very boring but it's very important um, there has been an internal watchdog. So this is coming from the Commerce Department's Inspector General. These are the folks who uh, who kind of make sure that everything that the various government departments are doing are above board. They came out, and they said they uncovered multiple risks. During an audit of processes used by two agencies within the department. So this is coming from the Bureau of Industry and Security and the International Trade Administration. And what they have found is that these risks relate to ways that the tariffs that uh, President Trump has put on uh, mainly steel and aluminum are the, the two big ones under fire here. Um, The way that companies have been able to ask to be exempted from those tariffs, so foreign companies that want to sell their steel or aluminum into the U.S. have been exempted in ways that might not entirely be legal. Uh, So here was their quote. They said, Quote, we believe these issues give the perception that the Section 232 exclusion request review process is neither transparent nor objective. They said the appearance of improper influence in the decision making for tariff exclusion requests is uh, contributing to public distrust. So don't know what all this is going to mean long term, but we do know that those tariffs have been a key component of President Trump's uh, trade policy. As uh, as it has existed over the past, geez, eighteen months.
2: Yeah, and to piggy bank off of that, Mike, we have seen U.S. farm bankruptcies surge twenty four percent, largely due to the trade war with China. And in September, it was that that month alone surged twenty four percent to the highest farm bankruptcies since two thousand and eleven.
0: Ooh, not great news there no
2: no it's not and almost 40 percent of projected farm profits this year will come from trade aid disaster assistance federal subsidies and insurance payments and not from marketing their crops and oh livestock. my so
0: 40 yes. percent of net farm income
2: yes isn't that crazy that's a huge amount
0: it is. And, you know, it seems like it was not that well. It seems like it was just 2012, 2013 when net farm income was flying. And, uh, you know, producers were saying, hey, let's uh, let's go ahead and not take so many government subsidies, right. many government programs and gave up quite a few of them, gave up direct payments, gave up a lot of things that I bet right now we wish we had in uh, in farm country.
2: I, yeah, I think you're right.
0: So I've got some news. We're going around the world, Delaney. We are going down to the South Pacific, and we're talking Indonesia. So this is interesting. Indonesia has been uh, under a plague of forest fires throughout the country, and what they say is that the haze created by those forest fires is likely affecting the quality of palm fruits, and here's the important thing – production of palm oil delaney what is palm oil a direct competitor to here in the united states
2: soybean oil
0: soybean oil you're exactly right indonesia is one of the world's largest producers of palm oil and for them to have a crisis could mean good things for american uh, soybean crushers we've got great demand for meal of course as we look at the growing livestock herds in this country particularly on the pork side but oil has kind of lagged we've needed to find a way to really boost that demand and this might just be the thing to do it maybe we'll start standing in for uh, for palm oil around the world
2: all right well this is something that we'll have to continue to watch I- it's probably not something that's going to impact us right away, but definitely uh, long-term implications possible.
0: Right, right. They, they do say, you know, OK, we're just getting started. Um, they say the other concern they've got, and this makes sense with forest fires, uh, they're suffering a drought. And right now, according to long-range forecasts, um, Alpian... Uh, uh, I apologize. Um, I don't know how you say his name. He is a palm planter from Indonesia. He said, quote, it is looking like we won't have enough rain until December, and this could delay the next harvest season. So not only are they having trouble this season, this lack of rain could impact next year as well. This could be a fairly long running issue in the palm oil industry.
2: Well, you'll have to ask some of your coworkers there at Zeyner Group, maybe Ted Seifert. I know he's a big soybean crusher guy. Maybe he can uh share some insight on what that could mean for the soy complex.
0: Absolutely. as soon as I see Ted again, I will get his thoughts, and we will uh we'll probably just p- play a little blip um probably on monday well We'll just plan on having Ted on, on monday, and we'll we'll get to the bottom of it. All
2: right, don't you forget it
0: well, I. you better remind me
2: <laughs> I know unfortunately.
0: Yeah, you know, I know where I sit, Delaney. Okay. All right, what other news do you have for us?
2: I am out of news, Mike. Do you have anything else, or should we take a look at the commodity markets?
0: I have one other piece of news for us that I think is definitely worth discussing. This is coming from the U.S. House of Representatives. Speaker Nancy Pelosi says the House of Representatives is making progress every day toward approving the trade agreement USMCA. She said the House is on a, quote, path to yes. And she said again, quote, we are moving with the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement making progress every day. I'm optimistic that we are still on a path to yes and that we will come to a conclusion soon on that, which is great news because, uh, as we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, all the other countries who participate are ready to get this thing inked and signed. And hopefully, if the Democrats are willing to push the ball down the court, maybe we'll get USMCA done, and we can at least have one piece of certainty when it comes to American trade.
2: That would sure be nice.
0: Absolutely. Well, Delaney, I'll tell you what, that wraps up my news. Should we jump into the markets?
2: Let's do it.
0: All right, folks. And we had a volatile day in the markets today. We saw We saw corn just absolutely going crazy, ended lower on the day. Beans were higher on the day. Wheat was uh, slightly lower on the day. As we take a look, Deese corn down three quarters of a penny at 390 even. The March contract also dropped three quarters to finish at 398 and three quarters. In soybeans, November contract up three quarters of a penny at 916 and three quarters. January up one and three quarters, finished the day at 932 and a quarter. Chicago wheat, December contract down half a cent at 508 and three quarters. The March down a quarter penny. Finished at 514 and three quarters. Jumping into the world of livestock, we've got weakness in the live cattle complex. December live cattle down a dollar 0750 to close at 11722 and a half. February down 75 cents, finished at 122.35. In feeders, November contract dropped 27.5 cents, closed at 147.60. January contract down 12.5 cents to close at 144.67.50. And in lean hogs, a little bit of strength here in the lean hog market today. December contract was up 22.5 cents at $66. February up a nickel closed the day at 73.32 and a half. And in dairy, we've got a little bit of a pullback, not surprising given the recent strength we've seen in the dairy industry. November contract dropped 10 cents on the day to $20. 11 cents. Still great to see a 20 handle in front of that class three milk contract. It has been a long time since our dairy producing friends have seen $20 milk. December contract dropped 2 cents to close at 1946. Without further ado, Delaney, let's kick it over to Robert White from the RFA. Well, folks, for today's interview on the podcast, we're talking to a good friend of ours, Mr. Robert White from RFA. He is the VP of Industry. And, Robert, bring us up to speed. We have seen some tough – this has been a really tough year for the ethanol industry as a whole. We saw a spate of closures earlier this year. Haven't heard any
1: recently. Have we turned a corner? Well, perhaps, uh, but the – uncertainty of trade, the uncertainty of Mother Nature, and obviously the uncertainty within the administration, specifically at EPA, has not changed. And so the only thing that's really helped is some favorable margins, profitability at the ethanol plants that are still open. But uh, with the exception of one, and that was really because of some changes in California, where most of their product has gone, uh, the shuttered plants remain closed. Jeez, do we have any
0: timeline on what it's going to take to get these plants back open, or is there a possibility they're going to reopen?
1: Well, that's, that's the problem. Uh, there's definitely uh, some signs that some of them will not open again. They, they could mm-hmm. be permanently shuttered. Others are just looking at the economics, the access to capital, uh, capital with the uncertainty in Washington is, is very, very tough. Uh, Just listening to a testimony in in a D.C. committee hearing, and one of the ethanol producers testifying specifically said they had better access to capital in 2012 in a 50-year drought than they do in the political uncertainty we have today.
2: So I want to turn our attention to that political uncertainty, Robert. It's been, what, two weeks now since we've seen this quote-unquote compromise that the administration released to help out the ethanol and renewable fuels industries uh, in lieu of those small refinery exemption waivers. A lot of folks have come forward and said, this is not really a compromise. This is not what we are expecting. It's not really a great deal for the renewable fuels industry. So what would have been a better compromise that would have satisfied the renewable fuels folks?
1: Well, yeah, the the reality, Delaney, is that it's like someone went and robbed a bank and took $100, and then a couple of weeks later, they brought back 50 and everyone should be happy. That's what the administration is doing here. They've, they have granted small refiner exemptions over a billion gallons the last three years, and in this new proposal, the numbers really translate to about half of that per year on average. And, obviously, that's not acceptable. acceptable. The, the RFS specifically says there will be 15 billion gallons of conventional biofuels. Most of that, obviously, is ethanol. That will be bl- – or corn ethanol will be blended into the U.S. fuel supply. That number is now almost voluntary with the small refinery exemptions, and the current proposal would, in fact, not get it back to the 15 billion gallons that was promised not only by the president, but was promised by EPA Administrator Wheeler – uh, Secretary Purdue and others. And the renewable fuels industry, both biodiesel and ethanol, are left scratching their head. This is not what was stated on October 4th and, and since. And we're hoping that the combination of a hearing today, the RVO and supplemental rulemaking hearing tomorrow in, in uh, Michigan, and then supplemental comments uh, over the next 30 days will will ultimately lead to a better number that not only is is not a concession to the ethanol industry, it is simply upholding the law. And I think that's been lost in this conversation. It, and it, it has. Oh, sorry,
0: Delaney.
2: No, I just wanted to ask a, a clarity question. Robert, do you know, we keep hearing these small refinery waivers, but do you know, I, I think we've discussed it on the podcast before, but how do they define those small refineries? Because from what we've seen, it looks like the big companies like, BP and Chevron and some of these really large oil companies are getting these waivers when it's like they're billion dollar companies.
1: Right. The, the way the RFS was written, and these are some of those nuances that come back to haunt you uh, potentially several years down the road, in this case, decades down the road, but the small refiner exemption uh, procedure that's allowed in the RFS was pretty simple and straightforward. It basically said if a small refinery produces less than 75,000 barrels a day of petroleum, they are classified as a small refiner. If they can show and demonstrate to the federal government that there is disproportionate economic hardship from uh, them in, uh, taking their annual volume obligation and blending that, then they could be allowed an exemption, a partial, a full, or somewhere in the middle Uh, exemption of their total volume uh, could be waived. On top of that, those gallons were supposed to be reallocated to the rest of the obligated parties. So at the end of the year, in this case, 15 billion gallons remain 15 billion gallons. It just might have been different uh, folks involved in the overall blending of that 15 billion gallons. But now what has happened uh, through a lot of uh, non-transparency and backdoor operations at EPA is what we've seen is if you own one of those small refinery exempt small refinery excuse me uh, you are now allowed to apply so you have Exxon Mobil and others that are making 20 plus billion dollars a year in net profit allowed a small refinery exemption and the way EPA is doing them they are in arrears so there's no way to reallocate those gallons, and that's why we not hit the 15 billion gallon uh, conventional ethanol, conventional uh, for renewable fuels mark the last three years.
0: It's so frustrating, and I need to ask you, Robert, when we had Scott Pruitt as head of the uh, EPA, there was you know a lot of the concertion in the ethanol industry. Of course, he comes from an oil industry background. He's—we figured he might err on that side of the issue. When he left, and Administrator Wheeler took his place, there seemed to be some hope that uh, this administrator would be a little more fair-minded. It—it it doesn't seem to be looking from the outside. What's your take when you look at how the EPA is approaching this issue?
1: Well, we—we we, we obviously agree fully that there is the hope has been lost and uh, what we've seen in, in court documents and releases of through Freedom of Information Act is essentially when a small refiner applies for a, a hardship waiver, those waiver requests go to the Department of Energy and the Department of Energy assesses them and they provide a recommendation to back to EPA and EPA essentially has I think it's 30 or 90 days to, to react to that recommendation. We now know that under Administrator Pruitt and under Administrator Wheeler, that DOE was making recommendations for denials. They were making recommendations for partial waivers, and guess what? They were always granted and in full form. So even the way the law was intended to work at the lower level on DOE recommendations, that didn't happen either, and under this new proposal that that Delaney asked about, what EPA is is now suggesting is, well, let's just use the DOE recommendations as the numbers that we use for reallocation. Well, wait a minute. If you were to use those recommendations, then that might make sense. But since you more than doubled those recommendations, uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to anybody. And I, I hope that the listening audience uh, kind of gets a glimpse behind the curtain here.
2: Absolutely. I think that You are helping us look behind that curtain. But, Robert, I want to turn our attention to the biodiesel industry. We hear so much about the ethanol industry and what it's doing to corn growers, but what about the biodiesel side of things? Are those folks satisfied with the current status quo?
1: Well, I don't want to speak too much on their behalf, but I can tell you that our our coalition against what's been going on in this administration includes the biodiesel industry, and we're in lockstep. The law was was working very well and as intended, and you know, since Administrator Pruitt and now Administrator Wheeler have had control of the program, that simply has not been the case, and we have biodiesel facilities shuttered just like ethanol facilities, and unfortunately, uh, projects that were on the horizon that, for both fuels have been uh, put on hold or put on ice, and uh, this simply is not a, a setup that leads to access to more capital, access to more markets, and leaves you know most people scratching their heads. Well, let's talk about access to more
0: markets. Earlier this year, perhaps it was late last year, China announced they were going to make a push for greater ethanol inclusion in their fuels in order to help combat a lot of their air pollution. And it seems like with this deal, potential deal, we might be signing maybe – Possibly with China on the fifteenth, um, is there the chance that that market that Chinese market could open up in a greater way and, and might that help alleviate some of the uh, the pain that uh, American processors are feeling
1: well there's a chance, uh, but just overnight there was uh, rumors of China pulling back on their ethanol fuel standards uh, that was supposed to be implemented next year and, and part of that you know is twofold that to talk about their standard, they really had an idea of Implementing actually had a federal mandate for implementing a 10% ethanol or an E10 standard in 2020. For ethanol content, that would have been 4 billion gallons of ethanol. So basically one-fourth of our U.S. ethanol production capacity would have been needed in China. And China simply does not have that volume. Obviously, they hope to have it at some point. But the U.S. ethanol industry could have provided a lot of that product and at least a billion gallons to get started and, and maybe, you know, even more. But with the trade dispute that's been going on and, and the 2020 calendar years quickly approaching, now it seems, at least through reports overnight, that China is second-guessing whether they can do that. And, and unfortunately, maybe that's another fallout of the trade dispute. But if, if things were consistent, like we had 300 million gallons a year going to China before the trade dispute – Obviously, we'd love to have that volume now, uh, but if they keep uh, uh, their plans for the 2020 mandate, that volume can go up exponentially.
0: I've got one more question for you. When we we talk about the announcement that EPA has made, uh, this using a a three-year rolling average to kind of attempt to reincorporate some of these gallons back into production, they say that, but we don't really know what they're going to require until the RVO is published. Is that correct?
1: That's right, and so that's that's some of the uncertainty is is how do you you know how how do you trust it at this point you know you, you we've been burned plenty of times we've been told one thing and given another and so to uh, you know just say welcome the just quote unquote trust us it, is tough and so what we have been proposing for for a number of months now is to use a three year average rolling average of those exempted gallons and put it in the 2020 RVO that's currently under proposal. And that way there is, it is codified, it is in the final rulemaking. We know what those gallons are. It sends a signal to the market, hey, we need more fuel. Uh, it sends a, a message to the producers and the obligated parties that this volumes uh, will be upheld. If you punt that into 2021, we are now after an election Uh, We are now another year of small refiner exemptions that may or may not be reallocated. And that's just something that we hope we can reverse because that's just not acceptable.
0: And even if we get the 2020 RVO to include these, uh, these exempted gallons, now we're just right back into the boat of those same refiners pushing for SREs, correct?
1: Right. And that's where... You know, the, the legal challenge is important and the comment period is important because ultimately, when the RVOs are proposed, those usually happen in June. In that RVO proposal, it says, how many small refiner exemptions do you plan to grant EPA? And all throughout this process, as comical as this is, the number, including 2020, was zero, Now, we know that you granted 30 one year, another 30-plus the next year. You're up to 80-some now. That number cannot be zero. That number is not zero waivers. It is not zero gallons. And that affects how the RBO is calculated. And so that has to be fixed, and that's why part of this is so challenging, is because even if you reallocate the gallons, if they don't change the methodology, the acknowledgement of the DOE recommendations, this is, again, a problem for years to come, and why all of this and why the the um, voices of your listeners are important to their elected officials, to the president. Um, this reelection process is the only reason we have anyone's attention at this point, and the farmers are the most important uh, component here.
0: Now you've mentioned a couple times EPA is doing a comment period for our listeners who do want to chime in if this is an important issue for their bottom line. Do you know offhand where they can go to make those comments?
1: Yeah, they can go to EPA.gov and look for supplemental rule. Uh, there's not very many out there right now, and it should be at the top of the page. Uh, if they need more information, they can ob- obviously come to our website, ethanolrfa.org.
2: Awesome. Well, Robert, we certainly appreciate it. Folks can reach out to you at Fueling Good on Twitter. I just love that handle, but thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for the time. Always happy to have you guys.
0: Well, a big thanks to Robert White. Always enjoy having him on. He is a literal font of information when it comes to the ethanol industry. He covers all the bases, and I just love his passion for ethanol
2: yeah that's very evident when you talk to robert that he is very passionate about this industry and it's not just a job for him it's definitely you know a passion and a way of life
0: it is it is i mean he he lives and breathes it and uh those are the type of folks we can respect we see a lot of those folks in agriculture and in fact We have had a lot of folks who live and breathe agriculture on this very podcast over the past two and a half years. And listeners, if you want to get caught up on perhaps shows you may have missed, visit our website. Go to agnewsdaily.com. That will redirect you to the Global Ag Network, home to Ag News Daily, home to the Working Cows Podcast, home to Girls Talk Ag, home to Ag State of Mind, home to the Hot Rod Farmer, home to so many fantastic podcasts. It is definitely worth your time to check out, especially as we... Fingers crossed, get combines and grain carts running here across the Corn Belt in short order. Delaney, where can they interact with us on social media to share their pictures of how harvest is or isn't going in their neck of the woods?
2: Oh, absolutely. You can always find us at Ag News Daily or at Global Ag Network on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we share those photos not only on our social media, but also in our weekly newsletter. So be sure to subscribe to that, globalagnetwork.com. Hit subscribe in the left-hand corner and it shall appear in your inbox every Friday morning for a little light commentary and otherwise. So be sure to subscribe to that. Mike, with that, shall we let the people go?
0: Let's let him go.